the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. It was, and to this day, in spite of the events of 2008-2009, remains the worst crash in United States economic history. And as we look back at the events of 90 years ago with the Great Wall Street Crash of 1929, what are some of the causes, effects, and most importantly, the lessons that we can draw from 90 years ago to help us better manage our money today? Pat Fatucci, let's talk a bit about this. A remarkable series of events. This, of course, coming on the heels of what had been America's first great economic celebration. It's a post-World War I environment. The Jazz Age is in full swing, and so, too, is Wall Street. Yeah, happy days are here again, and then they weren't. In a short couple days, all the major indices in 1929 dropped 25%. $30 billion in market value, Craig. So it was a big, big number back in those days. Today, it would be the equivalent of losing $396 billion. The event of the century at the time, life-changing for many. We saw films of people jumping out of skyscrapers because they had their entire wealth in the market. We saw bread lines. We saw employment drop precipitously. On Black Monday, October 28th, the Dow fell another 13%. On Tuesday, it fell another 12%. It was a confluence of events that was quite disturbing. It's been written up in history books for years, and this is the 90th anniversary of that stock market crash. So here we are, 90 years later, whole host of cycles that economically we've hit some highs, we've hit some lows. The Dow Jones was at 305. 305, compare that with right around 27,000. So is this, as America's stock market says, the perfect orgy of speculation? We've got an 11-year, three-month high that is certainly something to brag about, certainly something to be very, very concerned about. Bull markets naturally run out of steam, or we have a socio-economic political event. Name just a couple. Impeachment of President Trump, the China tariffs, North Korea, Turkey, Iran, Brexit, big, big headwinds. Did any of those spark a rally or a decline uh, overnight could have um, dramatic impact on this high that we're enjoying? What about the impact of of sort of the, the emotional side of this? You sometimes talk on your program, Don't Invest and Forget, 
about the frothiness of the markets and the sense of over-exuberance. I'm struck by the notion that Crash of 29 followed what had been a multiple-year, almost year-by-year, 20% increase in value on the Dow year after year after year in that post-World War I environment where it got eventually to the point where people saw so much opportunity, they began to heavily buy on margin. And, and that, in many respects, is what became the undoing of so many individuals financially when the market did crash 90 years ago today. When we talk about buying on margin, what exactly was that? It basically means you were borrowing money from the stock market. At the time, the guarantee almost, you were going to make a lot of money and you could pay, pay the loan back. Yes, there was some interest on that, on that loan. Now there are restrictions on how much you can borrow. There were no restrictions. So if you wanted to borrow you know, 100% of the value of a stock and buy 100 shares or 1,000 shares, you can do all that on margin, borrow money from the brokerage firm at the time, pay it back with interest, and you were going to be in pretty good shape. It was the 20s. You were in, driving in fancy new cars. You were dressing in that, that 20s era, a lot of drinking, and you know it was just a happy time. And no one thought, gosh, is this frothiness a little bit over the top? What do you think? I, I don't know. Alex Perry joins us in the conversation. And Alex, that makes a, a very important point, And that is the tendency sometimes for people to make very critical investment decisions based entirely on emotion, whether that's the emotion of, look how well I'm doing, let me go borrow money and invest more so I can make more, because the party's never going to come to an end. Certainly that was the, the attitude in the 1920s to the notion of people, as you suggest, that maybe remember these events from stories that their parents or grandparents have told. Maybe they watched the pain of the 2008-2009 Great Recession and still have the proverbial financial horses spooked that they're afraid to get too far in because of the pain of those previous experiences. All of this largely being based not on pure facts, not on a strategy, but on emotion. Is that a dangerous way to invest? It definitely is a dangerous way to invest. It's kind of removing logic and then just kind of driving by emotion. It just sets you up for failure in that sense. You can't really analyze your current situation. You can't understand it and then act strategically. You're more reactionary in that regard, not really proactive. And it is, like I said, it's always something that we try to kind of remove when we're coming up with a strategy for all of our clients is all the emotional aspects that a lot of people let drive them. Well, also keep in mind, not only was the economy doing terribly, but Wages fell 42%. Imagine you go into your boss and his, your boss says, oh, by the way, we're cutting your salary in half. That was uh, another punch in the stomach. So if you have any exposure to stock markets, and then if you were working supporting your family and you're now bringing home a little more than half of what you were earning, pretty tough time. Guess what? It took 35 years, Craig, for the market to recover. November 23rd, 1954 was when it re-achieved that high in the, in the stock market of 305. So 35 years later, and let's reflect on today. Look, we've had a, a, a pretty good-sized recession in 2001. We had the Great Recession of 2008. And here we are, 2019, at an 11-year, three-month high that we're kind of singing Happy Days. You hear again the same kind of songs and there is some 
clouds hanging over that if if any one of those events I just mentioned begin to crystallize, we could see some major correction in the market. Look, I'm not hoping for it. I hope we never have it. But the reality of it is there's natural cycles in the economy, and then there are geopolitical events that will spook the cycle. So any combination thereof, we're at a very dangerous inflection point. I talk about that with my clients all the time. We want to safeguard their monies. We want to create a floor of some sort. And there are a lot of investment products out there will that will help you create a sustainable level of income despite what the economy is doing. And so it's always a serious issue. That's when President Roosevelt, in 1933 actually, created FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, basically to restore what Alex just said. There was no confidence in the system. President Roosevelt created this insurance on bank deposits called FDIC that we've all grown to know and love. And But after the crash, banks only had like 10 cents for every dollar to give back to their depositors because they had exposure. The banks had exposure to stock markets. So a serious flaw in the construction of the machine, the Dow Jones machine. And of course, since then, we've had what we call breakers. So Wall Street will basically shut down and put these breakers in if the economy starts to free fall, if the, if the Dow Jones or NASDAQ starts to free fall. There were no breakers in the system. So the more the market goes down nowadays, the algorithms built into these computers, the more market goes down, the market market will go down because that's the way the algorithms read. When it hits lows at a certain point, the algorithms will continue to sell off or buy depending on the direction of the economy and it just accelerates. It's almost a self-fulfilling philosophy that will just accelerate the decline or the growth of the economy. So a much more sophisticated system, but guess what? It's still driven by, as Alex said, the emotions of investors and when they hear markets going down, they pick up the phone or they go to their computers now and sell, 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 sell. And that just catapults and mounts on each other. And, and before you know it, you've got a 2008 correction or, God forbid, a 1929 correction. But it's wonderful we've had this 11-year bull market. But there's some anxiety out there given uh, all the issues of the day. And certainly an added layer of complexity that didn't exist certainly in 1929 and was not as influential in the markets even as recent as 2001, and that is the new global economy. And like it or not, we are now more vulnerable so that if an event happens offshore, well, 90 years ago, when it eventually hit the headlines, people went, oh, that's interesting, and went back to their business. Today, a major geopolitical event in some foreign country can have an immediate impact on Wall Street and even events that take place that impact other markets, the Hang Sang, the FTSE. There can be a ripple effect on our own markets, and I suppose in light of this increased layer of vulnerability in our global economy. Does that require then investors, people planning for retirement, setting money aside in a 401k or an IRA? Does it require, Pat, that they be far more vigilant and diligent when it comes to having a strategy in place for not only how they get to retirement, but most importantly, how they're able to respond to some of these events? 
clearly it is the emotion that's going to drive decision makers. Sadly, that's not the kind of driving force you want. You want to really look at the fundamentals. You want to look at what are you holding and what's the impact in the long run on your holdings given the basic rudiments of the leading and lagging indicators of the day. All that logic gets flushed out and emotion comes roaring in. And before you know it, you've got, you know, a couple thousand point drop on the Dow or worse. The ending is normally not a fun story. So we've got to be very cautious, uh, not think we're entitled to this market. Brings back my thoughts of 2008 when the real estate was going up 20 percent and people were using their homes as ATMs. They would just go in and take another 10, 20, 30 thousand dollars out of the house because after all, it was going up guaranteed to go up 20 percent a year. It had done that for years until it didn't. In 2008, we know real estate went down almost 50 percent in some cases. So that entitlement mentality, it's amazing. Just 11 years later, we kind of forgot 2008, okay, most of us weren't around in 1929, uh, so we we don't feel the pain of the depression. We did feel the pain of the recession of 2008, but, you know, history tends to repeat itself, right? We kind of forget. And so here we are in this entitlement mode again. Sadly, the ending of the story will be as unattractive as it was in eight and as it was in 1929. Again, we need to guard against some major correction because 11-year and three-month bull market is a pretty scary place to be. So as we've learned in the first segment of our retrospective on the 90th anniversary of the Wall Street crash of 1929 from Pat Vitucci, Americans not only are worried about the potentiality of another similar devastating crash, but according to a new survey just released by TIAA, Most Americans are also concerned about simply having enough money when they retire. This new survey also shows that people are very concerned about ongoing debt, either that from student loans or from purchasing a home, and 60% of the respondents say they don't even have a written financial plan for retirement. If you'd like some help, if you'd like to take a little bit of the load of that worry off of your mind, why not contact Pat Vitucci or Alex Perry at Vitucci and Associates? You can check them out online at don'tinvestandforget.com. That's don'tinvestandforget.com or call toll-free 888-PLAN-WISE, 888-P-L-A-N-W-I-S-E. After this timeout, we'll continue our look at the historic events of 1929, 90 years ago today, the historic Wall Street crash. Could it happen again? And what might that look like as this edition of Lifeline continues? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The Roaring Twenties, America's Jazz Age, an unprecedented period of time of prosperity and unbridled celebration following the war to end all wars, World War I. Of course, on the heels of that, there was also the tragic Spanish flu pandemic that killed hundreds of thousands of people, not only across Europe, but here at home in the United States. 
post those events, there was a tremendous sense that Americans wanted to break free of that period of time. And so it was all about speakeasies, the jazz age, making money on Wall Street, certainly the notion of even prohibition, not dampening the spirits of Americans buoyed by the joy of incredible economic prosperity, so much so that the fairly young Dow Jones Industrial Average saw returns of nearly 20% increase per annum. Amazing times. Interestingly enough, some of those very same earmarks that created the perfect storm for the events of 1929, the, the eventual Wall Street crash, the 90th anniversary of which we mark today, some might argue that some of those same elements are in place right now. Does that necessarily mean another 1929-style market crash? Let's get some insights now as we're joined by a very special guest. He's the chief executive officer of KPP Financial and the host of Invest Talk, heard Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on the Bay Area's business leader, AM 1220 KDOW. We're pleased to have joined the conversation financial advisor Justin Klein. Justin, great to have you with us. Great to be here, Craig. While we hear some of these remarkable numbers, what was happening on Wall Street, seeing averages of 20% increases year over year to the point where folks even started to borrow money and essentially buy stocks on margin because they all wanted to participate in this unprecedented level of wealth accumulation. And, and certainly there are some degrees of that sense of exuberation that took place back in the 1920s, that frothiness in the markets that I suppose some might say we've seen some parallels of even in our own markets today. Absolutely. Uh, leverage always creates problems. Uh, and you combine that leverage with the greed of human nature, right? Humans are emotional beings, and we tend to chase returns. Uh, and so when we see our friends and family making a lot of money, we want to jump in, right? And a lot of times we don't have that money, and so we utilize leverage. And back then, you could borrow 10 to 1 on every dollar that you, that you had to invest in the markets. And, and that created a lot of investors who were highly levered, and therefore any modest drop in the markets created a margin call and forced selling, and that's what you saw back in 1929, which was about a 90% drop in the overall indexes. Wow, a 90%. I mean, that that's not a correction. That's a haircut, the likes of which certainly we didn't even see back in uh, the very dip of the market. I think the lowest point was around March or so of 2009. Now, of course, one of the major differences between what transpired 90 years ago and where we're at today, we've seen our markets here recover, and not only recover, but nearly double over the course of the last decade, uh, contrasting that with the events of 29, where it took more than 35 years for the markets just to remake the high of September of 1929, and that didn't come along until well into the Eisenhower administration in 1954. When we see that major difference, why did it take so long for America to pull her way out of the Great Depression, that even seemingly something like World War II, where suddenly now there was an influx of spending related to the war effort and unemployment numbers decreased significantly, and yet Wall Street, Wall Street was not able to really recover those numbers for basically another 10 years. Why was that? Simply, simple, and it's liquidity. Uh, back in the drop in the Great Depression, 
the government's focused more on things like the New Deal as opposed to reinfusing business and the financial sector with liquidity to lend and uh, and and create economic activity through that lending. Uh, you know, they they focus, like I said, more on the New Deal, whereas. We had the financial crisis just uh, you know roughly ten years ago. And what Bernanke did was QE, right? Print money, create liquidity, allow banks to recapitalize, and you know they effectively did that very slowly uh, by um, infu- you know, buying assets of uh, of the banks using you know QE and money printing, and that infused liquidity into the system, created borrowing and lending once again uh, within the financial system and economic activity. So that was really the big difference. And if you study uh, Ben Bernanke, the former Fed chair, you will know that he is a big student of the Great Depression. And he basically came up with these tools well before the financial crisis to react to something like that. And he was prepared for it. So it certainly uh, is a different reaction to to the economic events of, of, of uh, of each crash, shall you say. Uh, but it also creates other problems as well, and you're seeing that here geopolitically with uh, the uprising of populism really throughout the world. It's not just about Trump. It's really about um, this, uh, this global phenomenon and uh, the, the wealth inequality that has, has been created by this money printing. Not just here, but globally. And, and is that perhaps, uh, Justin, one of the major differences that that may perhaps have an even bigger impact on the next recession, not knowing when that will come? And, and I ask that question because if we look back historically, certainly the over-exuberance of the 1920s, so much being placed on call, um, a lot of those um, bad habits led to the market doing what it did. If we fast forward to 2001, it was over-exuberance again and eventually the dot-com bubble. Then we saw in 2008 uh, the impact of real estate and the derivatives and how that drove the markets down. But the one thing that's changed perhaps drastically, even so since 2008, is the fact that we have become so much more of a global economy. Just look at the impact of the ongoing trade debates and trade wars with China, for example, to see what's happening to certain market sectors. Agriculture is is one that comes to mind. And so with that, I have to wonder, in our new global economy and the level of interdependence that so many nations have with each other – is it possible for uh, I don't know what's what's the the notion here? If if um, the European Union uh, sneezes, could America get a cold in regards to the potential financial impact? If there is maybe a, a precipitous drop on the Nikkei index at one at one point for some geopolitical reason happening in Japan, could that potentially have a dilatorious impact on our own markets? Absolutely, it could, uh, but it also cuts the other way as well, and you've seen that with. The European Central Bank, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, uh, they both have been printing a lot of money over the last uh, 10, 12 years. And money is fungible. And if you're part of the SWIFT system, if the ECB prints euros, for example, banks and institutions there can turn that money into dollars. And it really liquefies the entire system. So this is uh, the, the, the lessons from, the na- from 1929 were not just uh, learned by 
here by the Federal Reserve here, but also central banks globally. And that's why there's a lot of coordination between central banks and what they can do to liquefy the system. So absolutely, uh, our world's more interconnected than it's ever been. Now, I do think we're kind of at a point, you're seeing this with the trade wars. I don't think this is a Trump-only type of phenomenon. This is something that is being viewed as a problem worldwide. And that's why, like I said, populism is on the rise. Is be is, is I think companies are gonna, or countries are going to start to entrench into their own home markets and try to reverse this globalization that has had uh, a large impact on financial markets and, and economies uh, worldwide for the last twenty or thirty years, and, and especially since China joined the, the World Trade Organization in the late nineties. So um, uh, yes, there's a lot of interconnectedness that cuts both ways. There certainly has been a sense that some countries have already been experiencing their own brand of recession, some like Japan, for example, that have struggled for years to try to recuperate. And I suppose part of that impact might be manufacturing that heretofore had taken place in Japan that in more recent years shifted to neighboring countries, places like, well, not just China, but there's been a a huge boom in manufacturing in other countries like throughout Indonesia. Uh, Certainly Vietnam has become a recent major player in that arena. And and then we look at what's been happening in Europe and, and certainly that sense of interconnectedness with the EU, maybe even borne out by some of the frustration by Britain and their desire, at least at some levels, to um, extract themselves from the European Union. That interconnectedness means not only does, I suppose, rising water raise all boats, but um, if if your neighbor next to you starts to take on water and been, begin sinking, that could pull you down too. Do we see some of that dynamic taking place in, in some of the recent financial problems that have been experienced by countries like Greece, Portugal, Spain, Italy, and its impact on on wealthier EU and financially more successful or stable EU neighbors like Germany? Uh, it, absolutely, it, it has. And I would actually argue those problems actually help countries like Germany. And the reason is, is because you have a common currency, right? And if they all, all these countries in Europe had their own currency, they would certain ones would go down in value, such as you know, the Greek currency and some of the weaker countries like Italy and stronger countries like Germany would rise, right? So the reason you're having problems in Europe is because the euro is too strong for the likes of, of Italy and Greece and too weak for the likes of Germany and some of the stronger economies within the EU. And therefore, that's one of the reasons why the EU export manufacturing sector has done so well. So Germany kind of likes it. They like this setup. You know, there are problems and, you know, they have to, put, they have to support the whole um, the EU uh, system in a lot of ways. But it actually benefits them from a currency standpoint. And that's a, a big, big tailwind for their economy. So Yes, those other countries do create problems for the system, but I think overall Germany actually benefits. And that's why I think it would be better for the likes of Greece and Italy to leave the EU so they could devalue their currency and become more competitive. And I think their economy would be stronger for it long term. Is that part of the reasoning behind um, Boris Johnson and the strong push for Britain to exit the EU? Well, that is that just goes back to uh, populism and uh, the rise of populism and the fact that a lot of countries, even the developed ones, 
want to pull away from this globalization and they don't want the negative effects of globalization anymore and they want to retrench into their home market. So that's just a, a symptom of something, of you know, kind of a larger problem that globalization has created. It's created a lot of positives, but just like anything, there's negatives as well and some countries can't handle it, especially the ones that used to be big industrial powerhouses like the UK that no longer are, right? And so there, there, there are political ramifications because of that, and you're seeing that there as well as here in the United States. Today marking the 90th anniversary of the Great Wall Street Crash of October 1929. With us is the Chief Executive Officer of KPP Financial. You know him as one of the hosts of Invest Talk, heard each Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on the Bay Area's business leader, AM 1220 KDOW. He is financial advisor Justin Klein. We take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation as this special look back to the Wall Street crash of 1929, where we were then, where we're today, and where we're headed. Could it happen again? As our conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. Our very special look back at the events of 1929, October to be precise, 90 years ago, when Wall Street hiccuped, then it sneezed, then it caught a cold, and then suddenly it was on life support. It took over 35 years for Wall Street to regain the highs that it experienced in September, just a scant month before the October 29 crash. And today we look back not just at those events, but the lessons learned. With us is the chief executive officer of KPP Financial. You know him as the host of Invest Talk, heard Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on the Bay Area's business leader, AM 1220, KDOW. We're pleased to continue our conversation with Justin Klein. Justin, I want to circle back. We were talking just before the break about some of the shifting that we've seen in the geopolitical realm and the fact that the sense of a global economy now has so many of our economies so intertwined, so interconnected that there are positive aspects of that, but certainly also potential risks. One of the things that you mentioned prior to the break was this notion that a sense of uh, the two driving forces behind the markets, fear and greed, the emotion of the markets, tend to sometimes, um, if not leading to some of these events, certainly helping to exacerbate some of these events, be it the Wall Street crash of 1929 and people reacting to that, uh, more recently the uh, recession of 2001, or in more current memory, the Great Recession of 2008. In every case, we find untold examples of people that wanted to be all in, they wanted to be a part of the driving force that led to these unprecedented levels of of economic growth and response to uh, an increase in the value of stocks on Wall Street, and then and suddenly events happen and the party is over before you know it. As you speak to the issue of long-term planning, how important is that 
to to avoid potentially the the inclination, the human inclination to try and and be in on the up the uptick and and essentially buy buy on the highs and sell on the lows, which is the way it typically ends up working when you're making financial and economic investment decisions based solely on the exuberance or excitement of the market, what your cube mate is telling you they did in their 401k yesterday, or what the front page of some money magazine tells you to do. How dangerous is that? Well, it's important to have a, a plan, because without a plan, you kind of are flying by the seat of your pants, and typically your reaction to market events drive those decisions, right? And so if the market goes up, you typically chase those returns. And it could be, you know, go back to the mid-2000s with housing, right? A lot of people thought that was their their, their path towards great wealth. And clearly, uh, too many people chased uh, uh, an asset class that was overvalued and went up way too fast, because typically real estate goes up with the amount of inflation. And we didn't have 20% inflation, but we had 20% a year increase in prices. So, uh, it, it's, it's human nature, so you're never going to completely eliminate the human nature aspect of fear and greed. But if you have a plan that can control your own personal fear and greed levels, then you can move forward year after year on a consistent basis and not get into the pitfalls of chasing the highs or selling out in the lows in some sort of panic because you took too much risk. So it's just important to uh, have a, a portfolio, a strategy that is going to have the right volatility for your own personal level of, of risk tolerance. Some people balk at a 2% drop in the market and they freak out. Other people can handle 20% or more, and it doesn't bother them because they just continue to invest. So every individual is different, but you have to understand yourself and really invest accordingly. And I guess the big question needs to be, what does the smart money do? And, and the smart money, I suppose, is looking not in a backward sense at past performance, but rather in an anticipatory sense. That really means that you need to be watching a number of in potential indicators and factors, not just what happened yesterday on the Dow or what's taking place with a couple of your favorite stocks or um, um, maybe ETF sitting out there on the S&P, but, but rather looking at big picture that takes in uh, a whole variety of factors, I suppose. Yeah, there's uh, dozens of hundreds, thousands of different factors that affect the market uh, each and every day. Uh, and everyone wants to simplify a uh, strategy or what happened in the market down to one thing. You see that all the time in the news. You know, the Dow drops because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, oftentimes, it's not even that factor. It's something uh, maybe less obvious, or there's a multitude of factors that, that drive the markets up and down on an individual uh, you know, day basis. But you, you really have to take all these factors and understand how that fits into, like I said, your strategy, and if it should or uh, shouldn't affect your overall strategy, because most of the time it shouldn't. You know, what earnings are on a particular company or uh, if there's some economic news on housing or manufacturing, should that really change your overall uh, trajectory of your portfolio and your strategy? More times than not, it shouldn't, but um, a lot of people do react to those factors as well and react to headlines when uh, they just should ignore it and stay the course. And is this a two-edged sword? In other words, some people that will look at what takes place, um, certain performance numbers or the gossip that they get from a next-door neighbor and suddenly say, gee, i got to be in on that. And so they tend to maybe take too much risk 
in in the equities. And then when there is a downturn, when there is a correction, take too much of a bath. And I'm conversely wondering if you also see a lot of cases where people are operating out of such sense of concern over the memory of what happened to themselves, or maybe if they're slightly younger, what their parents went through in 2008 and say, gee, I never want to see that happen again. And as a result, wind up taking too little risk? Absolutely. Uh, there's there's definitely, uh, uh, we, we have a memory for a reason, and we have a lack of memory for a reason as well. After a certain amount of time passes, people tend to forget, and that's why you have have these cycles. You, you, you have the, the fear and the greed, and obviously 2008-9, you had massive amounts of fear, and that scarred people for a, lot, a long time. And now that we're a decade uh, plus past that, a lot of people have started to forget that, and that's, once again, part of human nature. You know, if we always remember all the bad things that happened in our life and focused on them each and every day, we probably wouldn't be very productive because, you know, bad things happen throughout everyone's life. So it's based, uh, humans are meant to forget certain things like that. And so eventually you get to a point where you only remember the last few years. Uh, and uh, you see that with, I see that a lot with 401ks. People have a 401k, they get this list of mutual funds, and they say, okay, well, these mutual funds did the best last year in the last three years, and so I'm going to put my money in them. When in reality, you know, the market was just good, and that's a very high-risk investment, and they really shouldn't be buying at these lofty levels, and vice versa, where they see these particular funds might not have done so hot the last few years. And in reality, those are the best funds to, to be in, because the odds are what happened over the last two to three years is not going to be what's happening, going to happen over the next two to three years. Uh, but that's human nature, and you just have to educate yourself and understand those tendencies that we each have and know how to counter them. So the old uh, the old uh, late night television commercial adage "set it and forget it" really isn't a very solid piece of uh, investment strategy, is it? If you're just based on what's what's happened lately and that current performance, and suggesting somehow that it's always going to be like that. I mean, I suppose if that were the case, we'd all still have stock in Enron. Exactly, and, and you, like you said, you shouldn't, shouldn't just set it and forget it based on the last few years. You should set and forget it based on looking at decades of data, right? The volatility of particular sectors, of particular companies, particular asset classes, and then you can get a sense of, okay, over the next 10, 15, 20 years, it should have relatively the same level of volatility that it did over the past 20 years or so. And then you can create a strategy that makes sense for you longer term, and then you can set and forget it. But we're just saying, oh, well, the S&P was up well over the last three or four years, and I'm going to buy that and set it and forget it because that's what I should expect going forward. Uh, you have to look at very long time frames to really understand how certain asset classes will behave. The stock market crash of 1929, a 90-year look back, not just of the lessons of then, but most importantly, how we can apply those lessons learned to future investing. Our conversation with the CEO and host of Invest Talk, Justin Klein, continues in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The Wall Street crash of 1929, a 90-year look back, the lessons of then, and how we can put those lessons to work in guiding our future financial decisions. 
Our guest in this segment of our special is Justin Klein. He's CEO of KPP Financial and one of the hosts of Invest Talk. Heard Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on the Bay Area's business leader, AM 1220 KDOW. We were very fortunate as a nation in 2008-2009 to have Ben Bernanke at the helm as the um, the chairman of the Fed, particularly as you delineated in the previous segment, um, his background and historical understanding of the events of 1929. When the baton was passed to Janet Yellen in many degrees with a deft touch, she managed to deal with interest rates and use some of the tools available to the Fed, including quantitative easing and some of the auto and bank bailouts to, uh, to make sure that the bad situation didn't turn into an absolute duplicate copy of 1929. Uh, But now, of course, a lot of that is behind us. We've seen unprecedented levels of uh, unemployment numbers, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen numbers this low since the 1960s. Um, Certainly unbelievable response on Wall Street, the S&P 500 just breaking a recent record. And yet against all of this backdrop of some very encouraging news and Wall Street that came roaring back uh, with now a historic 11-something-year bull run. Uh, What are your thoughts in terms of the current approach by Fed Chair Jerome Powell to engage in what is likely going to be the third such drop in the prime rate, and albeit 25 basis points is not earth-shattering, but I have to wonder, if they continue to use some of those limited tools available to the Fed to address economic slowing, um, does that not put perhaps us in a very um, precarious position? Should there be some significant geopolitical event that really brings about a precipitous drop in the markets and a measurable impact on the economy, would the Fed find themselves sitting in a place where they've got no room to budge? I think that they do have limited resources compared to where we were back in 2008, but they can do other things, uh, just like the ECB has done. And, you know, that's what I turn to. Uh, Europe and Japan, they've been in worse situations than we are for many years now, and they've also turned to more extreme policy tools. For example, there, they've been buying corporate bonds, for example. There are junk-rated corporate bonds in Europe that are trading at negative yields because of the actions of the ECB. So could the Fed do even more? Absolutely, than, than just drop interest rates, right? Um, you know, I think the big pitfall that they are, uh, they, they have been doing for a long time is ignoring the impacts of globalization on inflation, right? They're saying inflation remains too low. They're trying to spark inflation, but they're, they're trying to run in this, uh, run against this huge headwind of globalization, which is pushing down inflation and has been for 20, 30 years now, right? Because the cost of producing goods just continues to drop as companies can now switch production all over the world to the lowest lowest cost producer and that feeds through to our economy and the goods that we buy and and they're completely ignoring that factor they're just saying that this two percent inflation target is what we need to get to and if we're not there we're just going to continue to to be easy uh in our monetary policy and so to me that's the biggest problem that they have uh they have ignored uh and it's creating unintended consequences like you said uh with uh 
differences in uh, wages and, and income inequality and, global, and populism worldwide. Uh, and so they are ignoring that factor. And but they do have more policy tools. They can print more money. Uh, they already started, right? They just started to print more money to buy T-bills. They're saying it's not QE, but it is. They're back to it. And this really has to do with the budget deficit. The budget deficit, uh, because of the tax cuts, because of ballooning liabilities from baby boomers retiring, 10,000 baby boomers retire each and every day now, which means they're going from paying taxes to taking in Medicare, Medicaid uh, payments, Social Security payments, and that is really pushing up our deficit along with the tax cuts. And now the Fed is monetizing that deficit. We knew we would eventually get there, and we're there. 80 million baby boomers and uh, the impact on the economy as they begin, as you say, to say, okay, we've made our contribution. Now time for the contribution to make its way back to us. Uh, Certainly will be interesting to see the way future Congresses deal with these economic challenges. Now, this brings us to a very important question, Justin, and that is simply this. As you've suggested, if the experts who have degrees in economics and they do this for a living and they don't always get it right – and they make mistakes, then my goodness, what's the individual investor who just says, you know, I'm raising a family, I'm trying to put some money aside so I can send my kids to college, or eventually my spouse and I can uh, enjoy that uh, retirement that we've always dreamed of. What's that individual or that couple to do um, if the experts don't always get it right? Are there resources available that can help them navigate themselves through this very oftentimes confusing and potentially dangerous labyrinth of economics. And in that regard, how can KPP Financial help? Well, there's always things that you can do to make better decisions. And one is, like we said before, is not buying into the latest fad and fear and greed. And a lot of times, you know, the latest fad is exciting. It's more interesting than uh, maybe a more boring strategy. But oftentimes, the boring strategy is what's going to work longer term. Now, anybody can turn to what is called a registered investment advisor or a fiduciary, and that's what you should always uh, turn to is some type of fiduciary, meaning that they must have your interest ahead of their own. If you turn to some sort of broker who's just going to collect a commission by selling you an annuity or a loaded mutual fund, you're, you're probably going to be put in something that is much better for your broker's pocketbook as opposed to your own pocketbook. So make sure that you're working uh, with a fiduciary. And then uh, uh, somebody who can develop a plan for you, develop a strategy that makes sense for you as an individual and your goals. If you have a lot of money, you don't spend too much, well, you you shouldn't be taking a lot of risk. And so you need to lower your risk level, invest in things that are more consistent and stable. Uh, others who might be young, you might need a more aggressive strategy to grow your wealth long term, and you need to have somebody that can really understand what is right for you uh, and not just right for their own pocketbook and their bottom line, right? And so that's why you always need to turn to a fiduciary. And in our case, we are a fiduciary because we are a registered investment advisor. There are a, a broad number of resources available through a KPP Financial, and folks can go online to kppfinancial.com to get more information. In addition, you'll find the daily podcast of Invest Talk, hosted by Justin Klein. And, and 
Justin, there are all kinds of additional resources. Uh, people can spend almost almost spend a, 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 a day poking through the kppfinancial.com website, reading articles, getting an education, looking at many of the resources and tools available to help people along the way when it comes to retirement and financial money management planning. Yeah, I mean, we have a weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. Uh, we also like you said, have the daily radio show, uh, as well as a blog that kind of gives you an overview of what's going on uh, in the market. So there's a lot of tools uh, that we have for the average person just to uh, get themselves a little more educated on what makes sense for them and their path towards what we call financial freedom. And helping folks, so what's the, the tagline? Um, helping the average investor engage in uh, above-average investing. And um, certainly it's a great education daily, 4 p.m. Invest Talk on the Bay Area's business leader, AM 1220, KDOW. If you'd like to find out more about many of the rich resources available to you through KPP Financial and Invest Talk, check them out online at kppfinancial.com. That's kppfinancial.com. And be sure to tune in to Invest Talk, heard daily at 4 p.m. on the Bay Area's business leader, AM 1220. KDOW. Our thanks to the host and CEO of Invest Talk, CEO of KPP Financial, Justin Klein. Justin, thanks again for the time. Thank you, Craig.